Hi everyone, welcome to the B Plus Plus podcast. I'm Abhi, and as you know, on this podcast, we talk to technology leaders, thought leaders from across the globe. And today, I'm so excited. Uh, we have somebody who can do so many things. Somebody who is a top rank uh, ballroom dancer, and that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm just joking. But I was absolutely uh, amazed uh, because I have two left feet, so I was absolutely amazed when I figured out that Mark could do that. So, uh, welcome to the post podcast, Mark Hirschberg. He's the author of the Career Toolkit: Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. Very, very interesting title, Mark. So happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. And you know, my first ballroom partner was from Singapore. Oh, wonderful! That's that's so. Uh, there is a lot of talent in this country. What <laughs> what can I say? So, Mark, you're based in uh, you know New York City. I believe it's nine p.m. in New York. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. I mean, we are exactly in the opposite time zones. But you know, the more I've been reading up about you, the more fascinated I am. You know, you're a former CTO. You're an instructor at MIT. A philanthropist, you know, and of course we talked about the ballroom dancing. Maybe we'll talk about that as well. But what inspired you to write this book? I mean, how did that come about? And I'm sure, you know, I've met so many thought leaders who have a lot to share, and you know, a lot of them tell me that you know it takes some uh, inspiration in terms of you know I have enough to share with the world, and now I'm ready to write this book. So when did that moment happen, or did it happen more gradually than that? Yeah. What happened long ago, although not the book piece of it. So I began my career back in the '90s when I came out of MIT. It was a dot-com era, and I started mm-hmm. as a software developer and knew I wanted to move into management. So I began to understand what skills do I need to be successful as a manager. And I learned these skills, I studied them, I developed them, and I moved up and became a CTO. And that's what I've done for many years. But mm-hmm. along the way, something interesting happened when I would interview other people. And I try to hire a software engineer. I'd ask them a question: How would you configure this server? And they'd give me the right answer. Okay, great. You took the right classes in school. You know what you're doing. Then I would ask: What are the common communication challenges that an engineering team faces? Mm. And I would get blank stares. Mm. What are the qualities you most admire in leaders? And people would be kind of stumped. They never really thought about that before. Mm. And I realized that. I only knew this because I intentionally went out to understand what are known as soft skills or power skills, or at MIT we call them firm skills sometimes, mm-hmm. and that we don't normally teach this to people. We've all heard networking is really important, right? We've heard this yeah. from our parents, from our teachers. Well, if this is so important, how come no one ever stopped to actually teach us how to do it? And all these skills were never being taught to us, so it became a passion of mine trying to help people develop these skills. And about 20 years ago, I got in touch with MIT as they were developing a class like this. I said, "Oh, you know, I've been working on this with my own team, trying to develop these skills. Can I be of help?" They said, "Yes, please come along, help us develop it." And then said, "Oh, why don't you come and teach it as well?" So I've been doing that for the past 20 years, as well as teaching this elsewhere. And really, this book—I've been for years trying to get MIT to give notes to our students. And to put the content online, because MIT has always been great about sharing information. For various reasons, this never happened. So I just started jotting down a couple notes that I thought would be for the students. I thought it'd be twenty pages of notes, and after three hundred pages, realized maybe it's not notes. This is an actual book, but I can get out there and share it with more people. 
Fantastic. And I'm glad you did. I mean, I was reading some of the reviews and, you know, one of the uh, readers spoke about the fact that, you know, uh, how she wished she had found this book 20 years back. And that was exactly my first thought as well. So I'm going to go get my uh, copy as well. Now, tell me, why do you think these skills, you know, the firm skills, as you call them, why why do you think they're not taught? Uh, does nobody have these skills to teach them? <laughs> or, or Or do you think that people have just completely underestimated the importance of such skills in uh, their careers. And by the way, I wish I had these skills when I was graduating college. (laughs) So it's not like I was just lucky and magically had them. I had to go learn these. I learned them the hard way. I, I try to help others learn it through an easier path. The reason they're not taught, it's not that we don't know the importance of it. Right. Again, we've all heard networking, really important. Right. And the skills list in the book They're not just arbitrary skills that, oh, I stumbled upon them. When Mm -hmm. I was writing the book, some of these, okay, I very clearly knew, but others, we've gotten feedback at MIT, and the same feedback has been given to other schools. When we survey employers, they say, Mm -hmm. here are the skills that we're looking for that we're having trouble finding. And so this includes networking, negotiations, leadership, communications, team building, ethics, they are not being taught in our schools because of the historical underpinnings of our education system. So certainly in the U.S. and the Singapore system models the British system, which is not so dissimilar from the U.S., are uh, primary and secondary education. So in the U.S. through high school, that is about basic skills for being an adult, right? Reading, writing, arithmetic, just so you can function. And they're not looking at higher order skills. When you get to the university level, the university is run by professors, and they're very smart people, but they're smart in a specific area, right? They're experts in marketing. They're experts in software engineering. They're experts in some domain. And what they're trying to do is credential you so that you can say, I have a bachelor's degree in this domain. Therefore, I am qualified. I've taken so many classes. I have this much domain knowledge. It's not about whether you're going to be a good worker or an employee. And in particular, for those in computer science, right? Computer science, we're teaching you the philosophical underpinnings. That has very little to do with practical software engineering. It's kind of like saying, you know, someone who understands physics or someone who understands the basics of um, mechanical engineering, asking them to actually build a car, that's very different than what you learned in your class. You learn about the heat cycle, but no one ever taught you how to build a car but we're taking our software engineers and we're throwing them into this kind of chaotic environment. And that's where all these skills really become important. But again, the people credentialing you aren't credentialing you based on those skills or credentialing you based on the knowledge of your particular discipline. Right. And I mean, I've always found this to be uh, such an irony, right? In the sense that we live in this age where uh, organizations seem to know their employees a lot better, or at least seem to care about their employees a lot more than in the past. But I, I just feel that, you know, every time I speak to CEOs of whatever size the company might be, they're always complaining about them not having the right kind of people. And every time I speak to, you know, our employees and, you know, other people, job seekers, and they always don't seem to have an idea of what these organizations are looking for. And, and it's, it's such a gap. I, I think if there is one gap and which is only widening as we get more and more remote 
you know, it's probably this. And, and how do you say we plug this gap? So for instance, a couple of things. One, you mentioned about networking. And I've heard that from a lot of students. Uh, you know, we work a lot with students and students keep talking about, you know, what are the, some of the most interesting things that they are doing? And they always talk about networking. So somebody somewhere is telling them that networking is important, like you mentioned. And I am somebody who's been petrified of networking. I mean, either I found it absolutely uh, pointless where everyone just passes their business card to you. And I know there is something in the book which talks about what to do with business cards as well. We'll come back to that. And, and you know, the other thing is the fact that we don't know how to you know, network at all. So I've been to networking events and within five minutes, I made up my mind, this is not working out for me and I've just walked out. So, so one, I would like to hear your views on networking specifically because I've heard so many, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, we work a lot with startup founders who are trying to raise capital. You know, we work with decision makers who, you know, finally go to that conference where people from around the globe are present, but they just don't know how to network. And the second thing is maybe, you know, you can talk a bit more about, you know, what's the most important sort of skill. I mean, I know uh, there could be many, but firstly, I would like to hear your, uh, you know, views about networking and how do you think we mess it up and what can we do to improve it? Okay, lots of directions there. And we should also probably come back to the earlier part about how business can better work to develop this in people. But let's talk about networking. You hit upon one of the biggest pain points in networking, one of the biggest turnoffs. It's these people who go into a room and say, okay, I'm going to go work the room. And 20 minutes, they wind up getting a dozen cards and feel, oh, I've networked. (laughs) Or the online version, right? I've added all these people on LinkedIn. Adding someone on LinkedIn and saying that they're in your network, it's a lot like swiping right on someone on Tinder and saying they're your significant other, right? It's that level of, oh, it's just that easy. But of course, we know that's not the case. When you swipe right on someone on Tinder, they're not immediately your significant other. All you've done is you've matched. Now, what do you do? You have to build that relationship. Now, that means dating when it comes to Tinder. When it comes to networking, it's not simply I have your card or added you on LinkedIn, it's about building that relationship and that takes time. Now, this is something we all know how to do. Even introverts like myself know how to build relationships. We just don't like being in a big room where we're talking to just lots of different people and it's just tiring and making pointless small talk. Hate that. But building a relationship, having coffee with someone and saying, hey, let me get to know you. Tell me about what you're working on. I want to learn more about you. We can all do that. And that's really the part of networking that people don't pay attention to. They just pay attention to collecting the business cards. And when you recognize that it's relationship building, yes, more relationships would be nicer, but it's not quantity, it's quality. And quality, like all our relationships, take time to build. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I can just... Uh, remember 20 networking events where I've gone and I've observed people <laughs> in the first 15 minutes collecting all the business cards that they could. And then that's it. They're done for the evening. And there they go. Absolutely. So how, how do you build that relationship? I mean, I know it's like saying how to be a better human being in like 30 seconds. But I mean, what are some of the pointers that you could share in terms of I go to a networking event, I have connected with somebody, I go home, or on the way back home, I add them on LinkedIn. What can I do next? And again, if let's say out of those 10 people, I found these two people to be very valuable to me, what are some of the next steps that I can take? You want to follow up and keep in touch and connect with them. So then the question is, well, 
how do I connect with them? Mm -hmm. The key to networking, I think of it in a karmic way. It is about giving before you get. So don't go out and meet people saying, hey, you, I need a job. Can you help me? Right? <laughs> Who wants a stranger to approach them and say, give me, give me, give me. But on the other hand, if I say, hey, nice to meet you. Tell me about what you're working on. Now, first of all, everyone loves talking about themselves. So just mm -hmm. asking them about themselves, about the job they do, their company, what they find interesting, their hobbies, they're going to love it. They're going to find you interesting because you're right. talking about such a great topic. What topic? The topics they care about that they're interested <laughs> in. So ask them about themselves. Also listen for what their needs are. We all need something, whether we need a job or we need to hire people or we need customers or suppliers or partners or just a way to get the work done faster. We all need something. And as you talk to someone, you're going to hear about what their needs are, what their interests are. And can you do anything to give? That doesn't mean you have to solve all their problems. But if you say, oh, hey, you're looking for a supplier, you know, I know a company that does this. If you like, I'm happy to put you in touch, right? Offer and give. And that's going to help build the trust and build the relationship. Wonderful. I mean, I'm so glad you said that, you know, when we work with students and a lot of founders, that's one of the first things that I uh, tell them about, because every day, you know, we get like 75 people reaching out on LinkedIn, either selling something or asking for a job. And, you know, even if you want to help them, it's just not possible. Right. So the whole idea is, yeah, get the conversation started. And, you know, again, something that I truly believe in, not just uh, out of like you mentioned, the karmic way of doing it, I think that's how I'm going to uh, uh, define it going forward is the fact that, yeah, I mean, uh, you give something and then you receive something, right? It just happens, right? So in the sense, rather than trying very hard to make something happen or getting something out of somebody, just help them out. And, you know, and as I always feel, most people are good human beings and they would uh, return the favor and, you know, it's without you even asking. So that kind of, always works. I know I went on uh, multiple tangents talking about the gap or something. So let me come back to each one of those one by one. <laughs> so we'll talk about, uh, you know, how employers can fill the gap. And is there anything, I mean, because, you know, a lot of uh, decision makers are listeners for this podcast. So is there something they can do? Is there something that they can do in terms of, you know, building these skills for their teams? Or, I mean, how can they incorporate that in everyday work life for their employees? Yeah, let's start with what are the structural issues that are preventing them from doing so? Sure. HR has now been burdened with so many tasks. HR isn't just about hiring people and certainly hiring in technology in a hyper-competitive market, but you have to worry about compliance. You have to worry about benefits. I don't just mean payroll and healthcare, but oh, Google has free food. Okay, can we get free food? And oh, we need the corporate retreat. Oh, and what about what's our, you know, charitable giving back to the community? We've asked HR to do more. And of course, they're getting more and more resumes, maybe not for tech. But when you think about other jobs, it's click apply. And so whereas you used to get 30 resumes, now you're getting 300. So we're asking HR to do so much more and get this avalanche of people and we don't have more resources for them, right? The budgets have only gone up modestly compared to the workload. Furthermore, the leaders of corporations, we're thinking quarterly, right? We're thinking quarterly earnings. We're thinking what's our number for the year. 
rarely do we, even in our own corporate strategy, think about three, five years down the road. Why are we going to invest in training employees when it's going to take 12 months, 18 months to do this? Even if it's as little as six months, you know, I've got numbers to hit now. I've got projects to get out. And so I don't necessarily have the luxury of focusing on those long-term goals. If you want to do that, if you can take that long-term view, work with HR and say, let's look out a year, two, three, how can we invest in our employees knowing the returns aren't going to come this calendar year? And you have to have faith that, okay, our employees aren't going to leave with high turnover that we train them and that suddenly they go off. Hmm. Okay. Those are the, the underpinnings. Let's think practically, what can we do? These skills are different than how we normally train employees. When we think about technology, we say, oh, we're bringing in Kubernetes. Okay, great. So we're going to use Kubernetes. What do we do? We send people to a Kubernetes conference or we bring in the expert. We buy them books and videos. Say, go learn Kubernetes. You're going to learn this week. Next week, what do you do? Start using Kubernetes. That is knowledge transfer. And that works very well in technology. We're so used to new technologies coming in, pick up what's the new language, what's the new tool. We can learn it quickly and we're learning just in time. On the other hand, when it comes to leadership, we can't say, okay, take this one class on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we're going to teach you leadership. And next Tuesday at 2.17 PM, oh, you're going to start being a leader, right? It's not that simple. There's no three-day class and poof, you're a leader. And there's no very clear time. We know when to use Kubernetes. We know when to apply JIRA, right? But we don't know exactly when and where and how we're going to need to be a leader. Likewise, there's no algorithm for it. So what's the approach for this? It's the same approach we use to teach at MIT. It's the approach that business schools have used around the world, and it is peer learning. What you want to do, it's not you get someone like me to stand up and say, do ABC, you're a leader. It's let's look at a situation. Let's talk about an example, and now let's discuss it. And we're going to get people from engineering discussing it, from marketing, from accounting, from sales. We're going to discuss it, and it's going to turn out that you have a very different approach than I do. Oh, I never would have thought about that way. And maybe I'm not totally comfortable with your way. I like my way. But still knowing a little more about your way, I have a richer understanding of how to be a leader. Or occasionally, I might be able to borrow things from your style of leadership. And this is true for teamwork and communication and networking and negotiations These are not, there's a single answer. As engineers, we're so used to, there is a right answer. Let's find it. Maybe there's two and we trade off. There's no one way to do it. And so you want to get that diversity of perspectives. You can create these peer learning groups. So let's say you take 30 minutes, 60 minutes every other week, and you have the group come together and have these discussions. What's happening? They're gaining multiple perspectives they're also getting this on a continuing basis because we don't know exactly when they're going to need it. But by having these weekly discussions or biweekly or monthly, it stays top of mind and it will be at the ready. And I actually have on the website a free download for how you can set these up at your organization. And yes, you can use my book, but you can use another book. You can use great podcasts like this. You can use articles, any content. The key is to have that discussion group and then just drop in a little bit of content for the topic but have that discussion. That's where the learning happens. Wow, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm sure that's going to change the perspectives of a lot of uh, CEOs. You know, I've been speaking to so many of them over the last few years, and they always have this, you know, frustration that they're trying to 
uh, you know, sort of inculcate a certain value, a certain work ethic, you know, in the company and they fail miserably. And I think maybe, yeah, like you mentioned, it's coming from that top down approach and it's not that effective. And peer learning is obviously, you know, it's just, it's like, it feels less like, uh, instruction and more like introspection in a way. And, you know, so it, it, I just probably, uh, I mean, I'm just, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of how we can implement something like this, because, uh, especially, you know, we work a lot with remote teams and we just, you know, feel sometimes that communication is missing and you know people are not really in touch with where the organization is going and all of those things. And I think this could be a fabulous way to, you know, get those conversations started and obviously uh, in the longer run, help them grow those skills. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah. And this certainly works with remote teams as well. And yeah. here's two great advantages of it. First, this increases your employee engagement, right? right. You're not doing this upfront. I'm sending someone to this $5,000 course and then I hope they stick around to get the ROI. This is saying mm. I'm going to take a little bit of time. There's, there's no real direct cost other than maybe if you are buying a book for them. And just saying we're going to take a certain amount of time each week or every other week or monthly to interact with their peers. Mm. Right. And so it's a small investment on your part. It increases employee engagement. You would ideally want diversity. You want people from different departments. So that mm. increase, increases the connectivity across the departments in your organization. And if you are using, say, a book, again, it can be mine, but there are lots of other books you can use. It doesn't have to be. What Mm -hmm. happens is now everyone has a common language. Everyone can say, oh, this is just like that example in chapter three. This is just like if you're reading good Mm -hmm. to great. It's just like the hedgehog model. Everyone's like, oh, right, the hedgehog model. And so you Mm -hmm. get this common language and that improves your communication and your interaction at your company, again, at a very low cost. Absolutely. I mean, uh, probably you know, the lowest cost possible, the amount of money companies invest in trying to build that team culture, which never really materializes. And then people actually find those to be rather mundane and pointless exercises. So yeah, this is a great way of doing that. And, and that brings me to the point that uh, I believe that you recommend that, you know, when people read your book, I mean, not that that's the only way that they can, but the, you do recommend that they read it in groups and one chapter at a time and spending, uh, you know, a certain amount of time. Uh, is, is that also because of, you know, the peer learning approach that you spoke about? That, that's exactly it. And we know from, from teaching at business schools, from my experience teaching at MIT, it's mm-hmm. in that discussion that the real learning happens. People can hear it from a lecturer. They can read it in a book, get on a podcast. They go, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, I, I get it. But whereas we can all remember the quadratic equation and go, okay, it's a quadratic equation. Keep that in mind next time I see, you know, a polynomial. Mm. But when we get to these other things, it's identifying where to use it, where mm. that's subtle and complex. And it's having that discussion that deepens it in our minds. And so if you're an individual listening and your company doesn't do this, you can do it yourself. You can get together a group of friends. You can create a local meetup group. And remember, the content can come from anywhere. It could be articles online, right? You can just read leadership articles or a blog post, or again, listen to great podcasts like this, and you can create this yourself. Absolutely. And and just uh, wanting to understand this a bit better, because, you know, 
when we started off in our careers, you know, we always looked for those inspirational leaders and, you know, they would uh, tell you something and we would be like, yes, that's going to be my mantra for the next 15 years till you figure something else out uh, along the way. So why do you think you mentioned that, you know, whether it's a lecturer or a CEO or a CMO or CTO, why is it that people don't learn as much, uh, you know, uh, with this one way communication? Is it because they feel uh, intimidated? Do you think it's because they feel it's not relatable? That person does not understand them, whereas their peers understand them. what, What do you think is happening here? Yeah. We stick to that sage on the stage method, as I've heard it called, right? That expert mm-hmm. up there, because this is how we've all learned yes. for, for years, right? And so yeah. as leaders, we think, okay, well, this is how I learned. And obviously, as leaders, we've probably learned pretty well, right? We've mm-hmm. done well in our careers. So, well, this method worked for me. So yeah. let's, let's do that to others. But not everyone learns that way. And we also, as leaders, we have experience, right? Why is it it's usually older people are wiser, right? I'm, I'm using this time generally, whether we're you know, in, our, in our 40s compared to our 20s or however you want to look at, we've had experience because we've gone in at some point in our 20s or 30s and said, oh, I know this. I had that mantra that that leader taught yeah. me about. And I went and I applied it and ah, it did not work. Okay, thinking about it, right. There were some subtleties here I didn't right. think about. And for that person standing in front of a large audience to say, here's what you need to do. Here's the mantra. Oh, but here's the 17 different exceptions. Here's how it applies to each situation. We don't have time to do that, right? I can't put, oh, here's like every asterisk that goes along with this in the book because the book would be all all footnotes. And so it's in that interaction, people, of course, in these conversations are going to talk about what's most relevant to them. And they're going to get different perspectives or even the way I might teach something that works for some people, but not others. And when you have that discussion, you're going to hear it three different ways, five different ways. And one of those might really resonate with you. I know when I was learning ballroom, we're going to come back to this. My ballroom instructors, they always taught me the same thing. They always said, I need to stand up straight or my posture is terrible. Partially I had bad posture. Partially my Singaporean partner was five, two, which which didn't help. I'm six foot one. And they would all say, yes, posture. I'm like, yes, I know. Okay. Posture. Until one of them said to me one day, okay, imagine as you're dancing, there is a balcony on the second floor. You need to project up to that balcony. And all of a sudden that changed how I thought of it. Yes. I know I need to stand up. Oh, it's not just standing up. It's, it's that it's looking up at that second floor balcony. And that one thing just clicked in me. I said, Oh, now I'm going to think of it differently. And there were all these other great ballroom instructors who were telling me the right thing, but just didn't resonate. And so the odds that I will tell you what resonates best, eh. but if you have this ongoing discussion, you're going to pick up on a different thing. It's not about one thing clicks, but you're going to get all these perspectives that together really say, now it's sinking in. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think that really, uh, answers that question i mean i was just thinking of some examples uh you know so we obviously do sort of weekly catch-ups with teams from different parts of the world and i remember you know we've been talking about being a tech company we've been talking about cryptocurrencies and blockchain and everything and i just realized that me talking about it it didn't seem to have any effect till one day one of our colleagues 
was probably one of the youngest ones, said, oh, by the way, I made 300% returns uh, in the last five days. And then you should have seen, you know, how everyone got so uh, into that whole uh, blockchain cryptocurrency space. And I just uh, realized that, you know, yeah, coming from me is probably just like, yeah, another thing that this guy's blabbering about, maybe it's not <laughs> relatable to them. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's a very, very... Uh, fresh way. Uh, and thank you so much for introducing this. I'm sure uh, for hundreds of CEOs listening and CMOs and all kinds of leaders listening, and it'll probably give them a very, very unique, fresh perspective as to, you know, how to, how to get that culture going, how to get those skills and values going for their team as well. So, so thanks so much for this. Uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a moment of personal growth for me right here. So I'm, quite pleased with that. So uh, moving on, I mean, again, uh, you know, I, I am definitely, you know, your target reader. I absolutely, you know, love books like this. You talked about from good to great and a book that I've really enjoyed. And, you know, we are always trying to be better versions of ourselves. One of the challenges though, uh, you know, for, for books like yourselves is the fact that, you know, growth, uh, you know, brings along some resistance, right? So a lot of people don't want to grow, right? In the sense, there is a degree of inertia. There's something, uh, you know, people resist. It's like, you know, spiritually speaking, the mind will resist, uh, right? So the natural uh, cause of growth and, you know, the mind will find meaningless exercises or activities to indulge in. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've, uh, because I've shared some books with some friends and then I asked them three weeks later, did you read it? Uh, no, no, I was busy. I'll start reading it tomorrow. And six months later, it's the same. And then there have been times when I got so upset with people. I said, I gave you that book because I thought it'll really help you. And now please give it back to me because you don't value it <laughs> enough. So, so one of the things I found very interesting, and I want you to uh, share a bit more about it, is that I guess you identified that problem, and that's why you introduced the app. So uh, maybe you can tell us a bit more about the app, and is the app actually a way for you to sort of stay with the book and the learnings on an everyday basis? What was the rationale behind it? That, that's right. It's a similar problem. Now, the one you identified about staying committed to the book, certainly doing this peer learning, that's going to help as well, right? Because everyone else read it. This is why people do book clubs. You're going to get that. It also, uh, the book is written, the chapters are independent. So you don't have to read it in a linear order. You can say, you know what? I'm just going to jump to this chapter, read it, put it down, come back to another chapter a few weeks later. The other big challenge with books like this, and I'll say kind of self-help book, books broadly, whether it's a business book, whether it's a diet book, well, it's that you face two problems. One is you forget it three weeks later, right? Even if it's a great book, right? Good to great, fantastic book. I remember the hedgehog. <laughs> Don't exactly remember the details of, I remember a few other things. There were lots of great tips I've long since forgotten. Yeah. Now we know spaced repetition, a fancy name for flashcards or just learning it again in the future works. So how do we get that back top of mind? And so what the app does, it's a free app. You can get from Apple and Android stores. You can just download it. You don't even have to open it. Each day it pops up a tip. It's like a daily affirmation, but recalls one of the things you read in the book. And even mm -hmm. if you just read, say, chapter seven, you can say, I just want tips from chapter seven. 
and it's going to reinforce it over time. Now, the other challenge that you get, and this is beyond just my book, this is media in general, we media producers, I use this term broadly, we need to move out of the linear content model. Now, whether that's a single TV show or a book or whatever, it can't just be, here it is packaged up nice and neatly between these two covers, because that's not how people necessarily want the content. Or if you think about this book, where are you reading it? Well, probably as you're sitting at home on your couch, right? Mm -hmm. Where are you using it? Not when you're sitting at home on your couch. So we need to make this content available when and where you need it. And this is true for all content producers, fiction, even nonfiction in a different way. So the other thing you can do with the app is say, oh, I'm going to a networking event. I don't want to lug Mark's book with me. Okay, mm -hmm. open up the app and you can flip through the tips and say, let me just brush up. What are the things I should do when networking? Or I'm about to do a negotiation. Let me kind of refresh what were the ideas I should apply. And so I think in the future, content providers like myself need to take our content and put it into different channels and mediums to make it accessible mm. when and where the users can best use it. Absolutely. I think it serves you know, two purposes. One, content on demand, like you said, and then also the fact that, you know, like the resistance I was talking about, right? I mean, I've been guilty of that countless times where I know the book is wonderful, but I don't go beyond the first two chapters because of whatever else, right? So I think it's a great way to make the book a part of your life, you know? So we are so used to using the fitness apps and running apps and all kinds of apps. And I check my heartbeat 20 times a day. I don't know for what, but, uh, and I, I think it's definitely important that we, uh, sort of take a self-improvement tool in terms of our professional skills and we sort of take it along with us. It doesn't mean we have to, have to, have to, you know, uh, read it or engage with it all the time, but at least, you know, can make it a part of our lives. You know, your daily commute, not when you're driving, obviously, but let's say if you're, you know. Audio book. It's not <laughs> yeah. eventually enough. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And yeah, or if you're in the, you know, subway or you can just, you know, listen to it and, you know, engage with it. And that's a great way to sort of keeping it fresh and sort of, you know, that kind of discipline that we require for ourselves to continue to sort of improve that. That's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great way to, you know, stay engaged. So yeah, please do. Uh, download the app as well. It's available on the App Store and the Play Store. Uh, also, uh, Mark, you know, the book covers so many uh, subjects, right? So many different sort of topics, you know, from leadership and management, communication, networking that we touched upon, negotiation, ethics, so many. But what, what would you say is the one big reason, right, that somebody should go and get the book right away? What's that one thing? If there is that one thing, or it could be two things, but what's, you know, what do you think will, I mean, as a, you know, as an executive, as a decision maker, as a leader that I need this book for, you know, what's that one thing? Sure. Think of the following. We're going to use an engineering analogy here because I know a lot sure. of the listeners and viewers are technical. Mm. So imagine you've got a rectangle that's four by 10 mm -hmm. and you're told, okay, you are going to increase one of the sides by two units and you want to maximize the area. So which side do you increase? We all remember doing these problems long, long ago. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure everyone out there got the correct answer. Increase the short side. Go from four to six. Okay, great. That gets us 60 units. So what? I don't really grow a lot of rectangles, maybe on some PowerPoint presentations. What does this have to do with learning? 
Yeah. Well, why is it conceptually that the short side, increasing the short side, maximizes the area? And it's because the two units we add on the short side is amplified by that long side, right? If we add the two units to the long side, if we went from 10 to 12, those two units are only amplified by four, right? So what we're doing is we're amplifying it by the long side. Now, all of us, we have long sides and short sides. So let's take a very contrived example. Let's think about, and we've all come across this person, he is a genius. He has all these brilliant technical ideas, but he is not the best communicator, right? He's kind of scatterbrained all over the place. You can't really put him in front of the, um, front of the board or executive team. You lock him in a room and say, here's a hard problem, figure it out, and they'll solve it for you. But someone else yeah. has to actually present it to the marketing team, to other teams. Right. This person is limited because his short side is his communication. Now, if this person could just get a little better, not being a world-class communicator, not doing that TEDx talk where everything is crisp and perfect, but just being, hey, not bad, even Mm -hmm. average in some cases, all of a sudden this person is so much more effective. You don't have to keep them locked in the back room and just say, thanks for the answer. We'll take it from here. This person can take it further. And so all of us, we have to keep working on our long sides, particularly in technology. One of our long sides is technology and we know it changes and we know we have to keep up with it. But whereas you might put in 40 hours a year, keeping up on that new technology, brushing up on your skills, divert some of that time. Well, if it's only 30, yeah, it's probably okay. And if you take those 10 hours and apply it to a short side, it might be communication. It might be leadership. It might be improving your network, whatever it is, put a little time into that and you're going to amplify your long sides. Of course, it's more than one long side and one, more than one short side for us, but you're going to amplify it, increasing your overall area and maximizing the ROI, the return on investment of the time you're putting into your self-development. So yes, keep in mind your long side, keep developing those tech skills, but put some effort into your short sides. Right. I mean, that's a great analogy, I must say. And I was struggling with the uh, rectangular dimensions there. <laughs> Brought me back to school where, where I would fail in math all the time. <laughs> but I'm not an engineer. So, sorry, Mark. But that's a great way of you know putting this across. And I definitely know quite a few such people, a lot of people who work with us, you know, in recent years, you know, if only, right? I mean, I, and that was my sort of... Uh, you know, dominant sort of feeling with them all the time. If only they could do this, if only they could work on this. And I really tried helping a lot of them also. And, and maybe I lack the tools as well. So I hope, you know, you know, for all our colleagues and a lot of other organizations that we work with, that we can definitely sort of, you know, use the tools in the book and maybe help some of these uh, professionals maximize their potential. So, uh, that that's brilliant. I mean, so, you know, we touched upon, uh, you know, remote working, right? So now, uh, again, I, I'm not a big fan of talking about COVID and, you know, whatever is going to change our lives. Are we going to get out of cities and live on farms and everything? Because, uh, you know, yes, we may. And, you know, that's the part of natural evolution, but I seriously doubt that, uh, you know, but I do feel that, you know, We've seen people struggling. We've seen organizations struggling. Uh, I was reading a report the other day 
where it said, you know, uh, you know, more than 60% of uh, uh, organizations feel that, you know, they, their, their employees are not engaged anymore. Uh, you know, there's obviously, you know, mental health issues, you know, all kinds of things. So obviously communication becomes a challenge. And, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, the peer learning, as you mentioned, uh, especially in terms of developing firm skills. So how do you think we can, I know you mentioned that we can still do that, but do you think, you know, on platforms like Zoom or like, for instance, let's say as organizations move towards a completely remote workforce or a mostly remote workforce, Salesforce now uh, made some announcements recently about, you know, their teams being remote. And so how as managers, as leaders, how can you make sure that the organization still, uh, you know, have that uh, channel of communication and not just from like, hey, do this task and get this done and whatever else, because that's happening right now, because that's survival that has to happen or people lose their jobs or organizations go down. But I do feel, and even with ourselves, I do feel that people are disconnected. So uh, what would you recommend, you know, leaders can do to sort of tackle this? Yeah, our management philosophy, unfortunately, comes from a 19th century view, which was mechanical based, right? It was organizing teams of people doing mechanical work. And the work that most of us do these days, it's information processing, right? It's about getting information about the project, about the staff, about what the customer wants, and it's moving around information. And that's a very different type of management because it's not just supervising tasks. It's making sure the communication channels work. And yes, to a first order, right? We can say, oh, you're going to work on this and you're going to work with her and make sure you coordinate and we'll send out an email. But when you actually think about how your office functions and think about the real communication that happened, think back to the days when it was the conversations that happened at the water cooler, or Mm -hmm. it was the combination of everyone standing at the whiteboard together. We need to look at at this and say, this is what we are missing. Because yes, we can Mm -hmm. all work for a couple months apart. And especially if we know each other, okay, yeah, I know how to work with you. I know you you think of things this way. Okay, and you're going to work on this part. I'll work on the other. But the longer term, that creativity, I'm using this broadly. I don't mean necessarily formal brainstorming. But that creativity that comes from the serendipity of our information flow, that's Mm -hmm. what's a lot harder to replicate. And so it's important we think about this. Now, as people talk about these all remote workforces, and I've run remote teams for years, we have to recognize there are drawbacks, right? And it might not be we're all fully remote. It might be that we're going to be in the office two days a week or that we come in one week a month. And so this is going to have an impact because now, okay, I can live not within, say, an hour of the city, I can be three hours away because if I'm only coming in one week a month, I'm just going to get a hotel room and I can do that commute or I can stay overnight, you know, one night a week. If I'm a thousand miles away, 10,000 miles away, it becomes a lot harder. And let's Mm -hmm. also think long-term about our organization. If we are scattered universally, okay, we do know that, yes, we can do courses online. We've been doing it. But really when we talk about networking, about that relationship building, we can do some of that virtually. We can do a virtual coffee, but it's not quite the same. And it's really meeting someone for coffee locally. It's meeting up after work. It's being at an event and running into you again. I haven't seen you for six months. And Mm -hmm. that 
requires some geolocality. It requires some concentration of people. And if you're in a major tech city, whether it's Singapore, San Francisco, New York, and then some of the folks are sitting on a beach in the Caribbean, yes, they can do the work, but they're missing out on these opportunities that's going to impact their long-term ability to advance their careers. So I think we have to think about the second order effects for ourselves, for our careers, and companies as well, the second order effects on what that serendipitous communication will be and how we're going to replicate it. I'm sure. I mean, that, that's, you know, I love the way you crystallized it. And I think, uh, you know, yes, like you said, you've been running remote teams for years and we have to accept the limitations, right? So uh, I've spoken to a number of leaders and I've had sort of those moments of doubt where I felt that is everyone running their remote team so effectively? Am I the only one who feels something's missing? So yes, no, I'm not. Thank God for that. <laughs> and and I'm sure a lot of, you know, people listening in, you know, who've had similar experiences. So yeah, I mean, let's not lose that creativity and, you know, that sort of human touch where people can meet. Like I said, I was hanging out with the students at a local university till 9pm yesterday and I absolutely enjoyed it. So I enjoyed it more than a lot of zoom meetings that i've done over the last uh two weeks i can tell you that so so yeah i mean in the sense that you know you you talked about the water cooler the recreation of the water cooler or the whiteboard moments as much as we can on zoom and uh, otherwise you know try and meet up locally and which is something that we encourage you know our remote employees to do so even if they can't you know cross borders but you know a lot of them are working in the same country so that at least they can meet and you know just exchange ideas and get to know each other a bit better so i've learned a lot uh, mark hashwork thank you so much uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and i think you've opened up a lot of new avenues for decision makers and executives and senior executives to you know figure out how you know they can uh, create those values in their organizations and of course on an individual level as well and like i said i'll steal your karmic uh, phrase and i'm <laughs> use it quite often as well it resonated with me definitely thank you so much so for all of you listening in uh, the book is called the career toolkit essential skills for success that no one taught you please get it on amazon uh, or wherever else you can find it and the app of course which is available on the apple store and the play store thank you so much mark it was absolutely wonderful uh chatting with you and we'll stay connected and hopefully get that coffee as well thank you so much for having me i'm looking forward to having coffee once covid is over absolutely wonderful